0: Gata Maria, welcome to First Up, this is Ratu, that's Tuesday the 6th of December, Cor Nathan Rarere aho, coming up we find out why businesses are going through, it. well another crisis, this time it's an inventory crisis everybody, I asked Nationals Deputy Leader Nicola Willis if her party would reintroduce the fuel tax in January and we speak to Marathon Man, Daniel Jones, winner of the Christchurch, Queenstown and Auckland Marathons, greedy. Kia we welcome to First Up. We're going to start in China today, where they are lifting many of their strict COVID restrictions after weeks of unrest in cities across the country. In Beijing, some residents who test positive for the virus can now isolate at home rather than at a centralised quarantine facility.
1: The BBC's Stephen Macdonald has more. Beijing's underground trains are starting to look more crowded again. Commuters no longer need a recent PCR test in order to enter a station. In some Chinese cities, shopping centres have also removed the Covid test requirement as a prerequisite for entry. Even in places where infections have not come down, office workers are heading back to their buildings. But the quiet streets in the capital show just how far China has to go to return to normal. A recent spate of anti-zero Covid protests showed the Communist Party just how sick of virus restrictions the public had become. Then the death of former leader Jiang Zemin made the situation even more difficult for Xi Jinping's administration. Many people remember the Jiang era as a time of opening and high speed growth. Then they compare this to now. Also. Fears that popular mourning could lead to great tensions have meant no public participation at his funeral. So the focus has been on changing COVID provisions as a way of gradually easing the pressure. The government here was never going to come out and say to people, look, sorry, we've probably kept these heavy restrictions on you for much longer than we should have. Instead, it's opted for the line that the virus has changed. Therefore, our responses to it can change. Well, those who've been out in the street protesting, demanding an end to zero COVID, they don't care how officials word it as long as they can get their old lives back.
2: The recent easing of COVID restriction is actually in the best interest of most people.
3: It's not too fast, and it's not
2: too slow.
4: I think the changes are definitely good. We've been waiting for our work and our lives to return to normal. Of course, it isn't enough. You can see the traffic, but work hasn't resumed properly. Kids aren't back in school. We want this to change as soon as possible. It
1: seems the government has given up on its goal of reducing each outbreak to zero infections. But it fears a rush on the hospitals if it moves too quickly. So, a broader opening up is expected to take many more months.
0: Stephen McDonald with that report from China. And time now for the latest news from Japan with Chris Gilbert, who's been out on the police beat this week. Chris began by telling me about one civilian who really, really wanted the police to know how unhappy he was.
5: The headline is... Man rides a motorbike into the lobby of police station and demands they crack down on rude driving. (laughs) This is in Fukuoka. Fukuoka is a very nice city. It's down in Kyushu, the western island of Japan, where all the scandalous stuff always seems to be happening. And on the 28th of November, a moped, or a a baiku as they call them here in Japan, Mm. suddenly appeared in the front lobby of the Fukuoka police station. It was a 41-year-old kaishain, or office worker, company employee, He brought it up to the doors at about 7 o'clock in the evening. The automatic doors of the police station opened. He went into the lobby on his bike. He started revving his engine loudly, and upon seeing an officer, he shouted, I'm here to talk about bad driving. (laughs) (laughs) Police accepted him in and then kindly arrested him for unlawful entry and the article says so they could have more time to talk but according to police he admits to his crimes of lawfully unentering the police on a moped which is obvious to everyone but he's still insistent that he did it so the police could crack down on people who engage in rude driving techniques like tailgating which I know is rife throughout New Zealand at the moment and uh, eternally. He had been earlier cut off by a driver and so apparently had uh, decided to ride his moped into a police station to complain about it as for why he decided to ride into the police station rather than walk into the police station he added i knew there was a parking lot i decided to ride up to the lobby anyway <laughs> um so just as always it's very normal times in that part of the country very
0: very normal and also yeah. too someone in saitama has been uh, calling the police but
5: not in a very normal way how many times uh, was this person calling <laughs> two thousand times in nine days Is the answer to that question Saitama a little bit closer to Tokyo So this guy called the police 2,000 times, more than 2,000 times In a 10 day stretch Just to yell at them Saitama is what we say in Japanese Like a little bit dasai Like a little bit lame Like there's nothing to do there So this guy found a hobby of calling the police Just to call them These are quotes by the way Big stupid a-holes and tax thieves Even more brazen was that In this 9 day period he got more than 2,000 times which is a call every six minutes and resulted in 27 hours spent on the phone, maybe on hold, maybe with an operator. But 2,000 calls, one, two, three, four, five, two thousand 2,000, is actually quite a lot. And it actually counts as obstructing police business. So he was arrested. He also, along with Mr. Moped, admitted to the charges, saying, I knew the police would come for me someday, <laughs> which raises more questions than it answers. His motive is still unclear, though, but apparently, according to phone records he'd been doing this for some years but only ramped it up to the 2000 within nine day you know kind of rate right within uh, recent months
0: well he's been listening to tony robbins you know it's just being all he can be he's really, really <laughs> aiming for that next level finally here good news for japanese police officers who fancy a can of coke and a snack while on duty
5: yeah, good news for police officers in Oita, again in uh, Kyushu, a little part of the country. It's very famous for its hot spring baths. If you ever in Oita Prefecture, they've got very nice public baths down there. They also have a lot of convenience stores, a lot of 7-Elevens, which, you know, is pretty consistent throughout the rest of the country. They are lifelines here in Japan. You know, if you need a snack, there's always an onigiri, there's always a nanachiki, there's always like a yogurt drink at your convenience at a Japanese 7-Eleven, but not for the police 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 officers, police officers in Oita Prefecture have been barred from the combini out of fears that maybe they would look a little bit lazy flicking through the manga, you know, magazines, the comic books, you know, (laughs) on the job, you know, maybe sitting on the toilet for about 40 minutes too long or something in the public restroom. But Oita Prefecture has been like, you know what? Cops gotta eat too, and they have relaxed the rules and they are allowing the good men in blue of Japan and Oita Prefecture to use the konbini, And like I cannot stress how important the convenience store is to everyday life. You get your baseball tickets there, you get your copy machine is there, the ATM is there, the coffee is there. Like it is how do you get by in a metropolis like Tokyo without family marts, natural laws and 7-Elevens everywhere. You simply cannot, because they have the sustenance to get by. And uh, now the the good policemen of Oita Prefecture are able to get a rice ball at three o'clock in the afternoon.
0: Chris Gilbert with news from Japan. <music> Fourteen and a half past five, you're listening to First Up on RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarere. I am keen for your feedback. I was just thinking about something Chris said there about New Zealand being the... uh, Maybe that's my 2101 question. Is New Zealand rife with tailgating drivers? Do you think we might be world champions, world leaders, number one, go Kiwi, uh, in tailgating and driving? 2101 or email us first up at rnz.co.nz. Well, the thespians of Wellington's Circa Theatre, they're at it again. It's pantomime season, and this year they're putting their spin on their classic tale, Pinocchio. I asked the director, Gavin Rutherford, about the Circa Theatre's tradition of staging Christmas pantomime.
6: It's been going for 19 years now down here in Wellington, and it's circus. So it's got this huge following, which we love and adore. Panto's a uh, traditional English thing based on, if you want to go highbrow, Commedia dell'arte-type characters, so there's always an evil villain and princesses and good guys and bad guys and whatnot. But we, over those nearly 20 years, have added our own sort of Wellingtonian twist so I would consider ours more along the lines of, like, Muppets do a fairy tale, if you like, <laughs> with contemporary music. So it's it's less of that sort of, ooh, well, there's still, he's behind you. Oh, and, there is, uh, I was going to
0: uh, ask that. It's not really a pantomime without oh, behind yeah. you, he's behind
6: you, No, behind it's you. all that, yeah. And the fantastic thing is that the audiences that come along know and, and expect those games, but we add our own little sort of Muppet twists. So every everything's a little bit distorted, like... Um, this year we're doing Pinocchio, but it's not the Pinocchio that you've seen before.
0: No. So how does Pinocchio, I mean, how do you make that in, into a panto? I mean, are there any female characters in that? And how do you twist it around?
6: Pinocchio is, yeah, yeah, exactly. So so we've, the characters in Pinocchio, there's a fox and a cat and Geppetto and a talking insect and Pinocchio of course and so we've mixed it up so there's we've got a fox the fox is the bad guy and there's also the blue fairy of course how could I forget <laughs> our Kahurangi the Kahurangi fairy as we call them and uh, they're uh, most pandos have a traditional dame character yes. which is usually a man with a beard going oh look at my cucumber <laughs> we don't do that we sort of Most of the characters are more along the lines of a a clown, if you like, rather than the traditional panto characters. So Jathan Morgan is our new dame, and they're playing uh, this karangi fairy, a beautiful fairy who's a little bit incompetent, but she's also the truth fairy, and she's taking on Rupert Murfox, who's (laughs) full of disinformation, you see, and trying to turn the kids into, into... and they have a battle between good and evil, and they, they make a deal, pick a kid from the audience and see if they in three years' time they'll be good or bad. And by misadventure, they pick Pinocchio, so then they have to battle over Pinocchio, you see. So the fox and the cat are both played by female actors. Pinocchio is played by a non-binary actor. Geppetto is played by a Polynesian actor. So, you know, it's, it's really, we know the storylines, but it doesn't matter. Who's playing them? They still, you know, we can get as much diversity in as we can.
0: Well, I mean, look, as as everyone knows, the star of Titanic's the iceberg, the star of Pinocchio is the nose. Is the nose? So yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll get yes. that one under wraps here. People will come to that. It's it's a traditional Italian story there, but judging by that, it, yeah. it's not. Is it still set in Italy or where have you set it?
6: We're setting it in Welly Woodington because all of the Circa Pantos are somehow distorted to be somewhere around Wellington. So this is Wellington, but not as you know it. It's a pop-up fairy storybook version of Wellington Woodington. Um, yeah, we go to Matu Island, we go to talk about Pitohoni, and we talk about Crofton Downs and all the local things. So it's it's something that, uh, because it's such, a, it's such a family show, I mean, there's the innuendo for the adults, contemporary music for the 20-somethings and teens, and we've even done our research. Uh, myself and Simon Leary write them as well. So my daughter has helped me extensively with TikTok references, nice. which will be out of date in, in about a week, I'm told, <laughs> but that's OK. <laughs> I can't keep up. And then, of course, there's the stuff for the kids as well, and the the kids get a, always get a chance to come up on stage so parents can take photos with all the glitz and glamour.
0: That was Circa Theatre's Gavin Rutherford, who's directing this year's Panto, Pinocchio, and that runs until the 23rd of December. 19 past five. I'm Nathan Rarere here at First Up at RNZ National. Coming up soon, Ashburton locals say that they're worried about their city turning into a turtle town and marathon man Daniel Jones tells us how he stops pain from turning into anxiety. Local democracy reporting time now. This morning we are in mid-Canterbury with Jonathan Leask and he told me about some major roading projects in Ashburton which not everyone is too happy about.
7: Yeah, we just had a big upgrade of the Walnut Avenue intersections along State Highway One as part of the New Zealand upgrade or eighteen billion dollar programme. And Kiwi Rail got in there, did their bit and then there was a gap of about two or three months before Kiwi Rail went in and did their bit. So everyone in town assumed that it was delayed, but apparently that was how it was programmed to operate and it ended up taking eighteen months and they finished ahead of schedule apparently but according to even in town it took way too long than it should. So apparently those lessons have been learned for when the roadworks shift south a couple of kilometres to Tyndall next year to do a similar installation of traffic lights and a rail upgrade right. there next year.
0: So they've got to get all the parties talking to each other beforehand. How was it though? How is the Walnut Ave
7: uh, intersection? It's alright? Oh, I think it's, uh, it's much better than the roundabout was. A lot of the drivers will say the roundabouts are much more efficient at moving traffic but when you've got it's the main intersection in town and people getting from the east to the west to go to school and that sort of thing. It's an accident waiting to happen. So now they've got the controlled crossing, so it's a lot safer. Right, there we go. Now, speaking
0: of that, though, some people are saying that they don't want to become a turtle town. What's the turtle town?
7: Well, I think he meant tortoise town, but we'll go with what oh, he ta- says. Yeah, we'll says go to, yeah,
0: you're right, a tortoise that walks on land. Yeah. Uh,
7: right. So the, <laughs> the council, as per the uh, interim speed management plan that all the councils are doing, at the moment they uh, were bringing all the speeds around schools down to 30 kilometres an hour and they decided to do it as a permanent speed reduction around all the urban schools and install those variable flashing signs at the rural schools. There was a lot of concern in the district that it would just slow everything down and if the school wasn't open and it was 3am in the morning and you went past it at 50 k you'd lose your licence because hmm. you're not going 30. So the councillors looked, caved to that popular opinion and they've gone for the $10,000 per sign variable speed limits. And there's about 16 or so schools, two of those signs each, so it's about $320,000
0: Right. minimum. Everyone just slow down, please, around the kids. You're right there. Um, Now, actually, uh, let's keep it with the the rangatira there. Ashburton College, the big rebuild finally underway. I know that rebuilding up and down the country has been very hard to get off the ground. So tell us about that. They must be stoked to, to get that happening.
7: Oh, they are very happy to see boots on the ground. I think they're pouring the foundations as we speak. Took three years of jostling to get it across the line. And then once they got the announcement of the money, uh, it took three years to get the designs and plans signed off for the first of the three stages. So it's a 32 classroom building. I think it was 32, and that's underway as part of the 60 million dollar rebuild. But because of those pesky rising, escalating construction costs, yeah. uh, they're currently designing stage two, and stage three is probably not going to go ahead. But they don't seem to mind.
0: Mid Canterbury's local democracy reporter Jonathan Leask. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. December the 6th. Goodness me, this is the uh, day that we call this day of our life. It's a happy 67th birthday to a comedian that's made me giggle since the first time I heard him. His name is Stephen Wright. He actually won an Oscar in 1989 for the best short live-action film. There you are. Uh, But perhaps you might know him as that very droll voice uh, if you watch the film Reservoir Dogs. Uh, He is the voice of K. Billy's Super Sounds of the 70s. That is Stephen Wright, who's 67 today. Uh, On this day in 343 AD, St. Nicholas of Bari, the inspiration for Santa Claus, died. He was aged 73 years old. And on this day in 1897, it was the first time that anyone, anywhere in the world, could go, Taxi! And it would happen because London became the world's first city to have licensed taxi cabs. Well done to you. Top hats would have been around then as well. But it was all going 1917. So these two things happened on December 6th, 1917. On one side of the planet, Finland declaring itself independent of Russia following the Bolshevik Revolution. Good on you, Swami. And on the other side of the world, the Halifax Explosion. Now, this is a Norwegian vessel that was trying to get out of the harbour there in Halifax in in Nova Scotia in Canada. And it was speeding to try and get out of the harbour. It collided with a French munitions ship carrying around 2,925 metric tonnes of explosives. The French ship catches fire. People start to freak out. 20 minutes afterwards, it explodes. It was the largest man-made explosion up to the time. Uh, the explosion and the 60-foot-high wave of water uh, it caused it destroyed every building within a 2.6-kilometre radius, and hundreds of people who'd been watching the fire from the home windows were blinded when the shockwave shattered glass. Wow, that all happened on December the 6th. And Anzaki is with me. Kia ora, how are you? Moreno, very well, thank you. People just keep spending that money, don't they? They just keep spending, can they keep it up?
8: They do. Oh, this, uh, the Reserve Bank Governor won't be happy about this. Uh, but uh, look, seems like we're not listening to him. Uh, retail spending is uh, going up. Uh, But we we have an economist who believes consumers are approaching a tipping point uh, despite the increase. Uh, So Westpac, uh, they uh, released some numbers. They say retail card spending rose 1% in October and is forecasting another small rise in November. And all this is happening despite the talk of doom and gloom, which I um, am part of. I think uh, delivering that doom and gloom, anyway. No, are uh, coming No.
0: <laughs> economic news uh, look, being
8: gloomy? No. No, never, never. Yeah. Not on RNZ, never, and definitely not on first up. Uh, <laughs> look, we have uh, we have more demand at the moment, thanks to tourists. Uh, you know, households are, are still spending too, and and that. Uh, is translating to uh, prices still rising. Uh, We also heard yesterday that the hospitality sector is bouncing back with uh, sales up strongly from last year. They, of course, had a really tough time uh, in particular during uh, the COVID restrictions. Uh, Food delivery is big at the moment with people spending more on takeaways uh, but despite the positive uh, trends uh, when you look at it that way, bank economists uh, believe the tide may be turning. Uh, Westpac say the spending power of consumers uh, will be squeezed further as uh, more and more people roll on to paying uh, higher fixed rates on their mortgages. So they're still expecting a, a sharp slowdown next year despite you know the last uh, few months of this year uh, st- still seeing an increase in spending. But that doesn't change the fact that... Um, You know, retail spending is proving to be quite resilient, and that means more upward pressure on prices. But uh, if you are a retail owner and you're worried about a drop off in household spending, there is some good news, and the good news is that uh, tourists are coming back, and they're coming back in good numbers, so they should help cover some of that slowdown.
0: Right, Abe, thank you very much, Anand Zaki and the business team, back with you on Morning Report this morning at 1027. Let's see what your New Zealand dollar is worth this morning. It will buy you the following, 64.3 US cents, 94.12 Australian cents, 60.5 euro cents, 52.14 British pence and 4.44 yuan and 86.73 Japanese yen. Yes, the Heralds, when they emerge from the balcony and they trumpet, it means the arrival of Barry Guy. Kia ora, Barry. How are you? Moreno. I'm very good. What, are the football, what is the football score for this morning? Thank you, sir. This uh, is the
9: last day of round 16, and in the early game, it's uh, Japan 1, Croatia 1. Winner of this game will go on to play the uh, winner of the Brazil-South Korea game, which is later this morning. Uh Oh, Japan in the first half, um, Daisen Maeda, who plays for Celtic, uh, he scored in the 43rd minute. And uh, as I said, Japan were uh, dominant and looked the most likely uh, team in the first half. And they started strongly in the second half, also. But since then, uh, Croatia, who were uh, finalists at the uh, last tournament, Ivan Perisic scored in the 56th minute. And uh, the tide has sort of turned somewhat and uh, looking uh, it's looking quite even so, um. Hopefully, someone else will score because we haven't had a penalty shootout. I
10: was going to say, yeah. I quite like
0: a shootout, though. I don't. You know, oh, <laughs> it's it's the highs and the lows. <laughs> it's, it's it seems really strange having it as part of the as as the, as the decider. Mind you, it's not worse than who was it? Mexico that missed out going through to this round because of the amount of yellow cards they had in yeah. the tournament. Yeah, that's right. They were losing a final on sixes and oh, I it?
9: remember like the World Cup in uh, the USA, and uh, the the title was decided. Who was at Italy against Brazil, wasn't it? Hmm. Yeah. And um, was that was the final was decided on a penalty
0: shootout. that it was just it was just terrible. When my friends used to throw a bit of paper at the bin and miss it, they'd go Baggio which was basically <laughs> yeah. based off that with I think Roberto, yeah, Roberto Baggio, Roberto Baggio right yeah. at the top. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It,
9: exactly. So this would be great. Um, I see uh, Japan I think Am I? No, I don't think they've been to the quarterfinals before South Korea has, so it would be good if uh, an Asian team did get through. But, yeah. um, you know, we're all set. How we long are. have we got to go? 15 minutes to go now. It's, as I said, Japan won, Croatia won, and then later on it's Brazil against South Korea.
0: Beautiful. I don't know if the Koreans can cause another upset, but we no, just no, wait and see. Brazil, There we go. Thank you very much, Mr. Barry Guy. Well, let's keep it athletic. Having won the Christchurch and Queenstown Marathons and then the Auckland Marathon for a second year running, over the weekend, Daniel Jones ran 60 kilometres across incredibly rugged terrain in four hours and 43 minutes to win his fifth Kepler Challenge. So I caught up with Daniel just, and this was actually at the time we caught up. You thought that he'd be quite keen for a some sort of foot rub and a lion, but no, he said, "Please, can you do the pre-recorded interview quite early in the morning?" Because uh, he wanted to go diving in Milford Sound.
11: Diving is a big passion hobby of mine, and we're in Tiano at the moment. So when you get that opportunity, mates, drag this boat all the way down from Ashburton. So we're going to head out to the Milford Sounds this morning and. Hopefully well, it's actually not looking like the best day but hopefully you get in the water and have a look around.
0: Aren't you like really sore though?
11: Oh yeah, that side <laughs> of it. Yeah. Actually woke up this morning a bit stiff, but as soon as you get walking around, I think that's that's the main thing. If I was, you know, going to travel overseas sit on an aeroplane or something for ten hours then get off that then it'll be a lot worse. So if I can get in the water and float around and do all that kind of, you know, what they might call a bit of a shake out of the legs or shake out of the body, then I think I'll actually benefit from it so
0: So you've you've done what what you won the Christchurch, the Queenstown Marathons, uh you've picked up the Kepler Challenge. Do you really enjoy running long distances or do you do you just not enjoy being around people? <laughs>
11: probably slightly introverted but not so much that I you know, try and run away from people. I do <laughs> I have learned to love running over the years. It probably wasn't so much like that when you're a kid and you're kicking and screaming got to go for a run at you know, the local Harry Club. That's one of my first probably memories of running but <laughs> I certainly do and um, appreciate my parents getting me into the sport and I've yeah, really started to like, I guess love it and I, I love the composition side of it, right? So it's just like getting out and actually pushing yourself. If you're racing other people, got a personal best time to beat, then um, that's all part of it. It's all everything I enjoy doing. I get a lot out of just trying to beat a personal best or anything like that.
0: Well I'm wondering too because I often wonder that thing you know when, when you speak to sports people that are successful about you know do you, do you love to win it or you hate to lose and you've got to be a bit of a competitionaholic don't you to to be wanting to compete in these and whether it's competing against others Daniel or competing against yourself there's got to be a certain amount of that because
11: there's much easier ways to spend your weekends
0: than, than doing what you do.
11: Yeah there is a lot of pain involved as well <laughs> it's, it's not like you're going out there and feeling comfortable, I don't think there would be too many sports like that, I guess whether it's the physical side of it or the mental side of it, before the race, you know you're you're kind of in your own head and you've got to really try and amp yourself up, looking for um, whatever way you can get yourself into a mindset where you know the pain's coming, but you've got to kind of harness those nerves and make sure that they don't get on top of you. You don't want those nerves to turn into, say, like anxiety. And so if you can use them and put that into a good performance, you know, you get to race day, you've done all you can do in the training, then when the gun goes off, it's just like, you know, you're against yourself or but you're against your competitors as well. It kind of depends on the race you're doing.
0: So Daniel, is that part of the, uh, the, part of the, I nearly called it part of the game, but part of the challenge for you is, okay, body, you hurt right now, but I bet I'm going to put up with this hurt longer than everybody else. I'm going to out endure everyone else to to get there. Is Does that thought enter your head as well? I'm just wondering what thoughts you can have on something which when you're you're trapped in your own head for such a long time in these events.
11: Yeah. And I think that's. It's probably more so um, important with these ultra events as well is you can do a certain amount of training, right? Everyone's probably done a certain amount of training and you maybe do a little bit more training than someone else, but then it all comes down to those percentages. And then if you're on level, then four and a half, whatever, eight hours, depending on the length of the race, is a long time to be out there just absolutely battling with yourself or battling in pain. So if you can just like keep pushing through. And there's other components of ultra running as well. It's like nutrition are you eating every half an hour, like, do you have enough energy to, I guess, get you to the line, and, or if you're running next to someone, do I have enough energy to maybe put in a bit of a spurt and try and drop this guy or girl or whoever it is. So I'm just
0: wondering, can you make a living out of marathons, or what sort of job have you got right now that that
11: lets you be able to train and, and do this? Well, if you're a fast marathon runner, you can definitely make a living out of it, and I'm probably not up to that level on a like global scale, so I'm not going over and winning the major like New York and those kind of things. So I've kind of gone in the direction of the ultra running, which I think there's definitely a living that can be made and you have to travel overseas just like most sports. And I'm kind of just trying to branch into that after doing a couple of years of marathon running and you know, Kepler Challenge is a great intro to that probably competitive ultra running where you it might be upwards of 60k to, to then hit the 100k distance. So it's a definitely a great stepping stone, I think, Kepler. And if I can maybe convert some of these performances over to the longer distance, then I should be doing pretty well. At the moment, I'm a coach as well, so it's it's really cool going along to all these races. You get good inspiration from your athletes that are competing and doing well as well. So, yeah, it's all part of it, and just loving being kind of immersed in that competitive running endurance uh, sport community
0: well you're doing it and you're dominating it in the country Daniel thank you so much for your time Uh, I hope you have a good uh, restful Christmas now I think we spoke to one of our audience who who was running a hundredth marathon and I think she said the thing she was most looking forward to uh, most important was Vaseline because you got to be careful there because of the chafing so I imagine Santa's got some Vaseline in the stocking for you Daniel
11: Oh, well, I hope so. <laughs> Before those long training runs or those long races, you're really like, "Well, we, we've run this place in the vest." <laughs> it's, it's one of those really important parts of your training kit and racing kit. So, hey, if um, you know if anyone's listening out there that's thinking of own um, Christmas ideas, Christmas prizy ideas, then it's a good one.
0: Yeah, you heard it from ultra runner Daniel Jones. Kilma Jaravas, it is twenty two six. I'm Nathan Raditya here at First Up on RNZ National. Between now and the end of the program, I've got a story about businesses which have twice as much stock as before the pandemic. I reckon they can't sell it. And uh, Nationals Deputy Leader Nicola Willis talks three waters: the fuel tax and the Royal Commission of Inquiry into New Zealand's COVID response. <laughs> The professionals of the RNZ ship uh, morning report. They've done their stretches, they've done their warm-ups, they're ready. It's Marnie Dunlop to talk us through what is happening today. Kia ora, how are you?
12: I'm good, how are you?
0: Not bad, we've had an interesting old morning. Found out about a, a Japanese uh, person who was upset at bad drivers, so he rode his motorbike into the police station and revved it up.
12: Oh, just revved it up, didn't, didn't ram-raid it?
0: No. no, no, no,
12: no. Oh, okay. He, he got arrested. Is, is that got anything to do with the soccer game I'm watching right now?
0: It, well, yeah, no, maybe there's that too. Maybe there's anger at Wait, it. Are
12: you allowed to say soccer? Is that okay? Yes, television? you are soccer football.
0: Yeah, no, we've gone with that as well. It's fine. Okay, it's associated. The, the England's had a football program called Soccer Saturday for decades, and I think just New Zealanders on on OE email in and go, actually, it's football to them. But oh, th-
12: my goodness. I think they're quite I can't about. help but say soccer, <laughs> it's, it's, it's entrenched. Anyway. Yeah. What have you got happening today? Hey, well, obviously, we've, we're speaking to a plethora of people in regards to the COVID-19 uh, inquiry. We've got the the head um, who's leading the inquiry, to, uh, Professor Tony Blackley after eight. We're also speaking to um, Professor Michael Baker, who's obviously um, was a familiar face and voice to many of us. Over the pandemic, as well as uh, Dr. Rawari Jansen and Debbie Sorensen. So, speaking to all of our communities, Māori, Pacifica, to discuss the terms of reference and whether or not the scope is wide enough. And we also get reactions to the poll last night, as uh, many would have seen on One News.
0: Yes. Well, plenty of it coming. Thank you very much. Okay, it all happens in quarter of an hour, everybody, with Marnie and Corin. Well, new research shows New Zealand businesses are holding twice as much stock as before the pandemic while making significantly less money. Inventory management software company Unleashed has published a report tracking how small to medium enterprises in New Zealand, Australia and the UK have fared this year. The stockpiling issue is common to businesses in all three countries. That's due to uncertainty around
4: how long supply chains would be disrupted by COVID. Leonard Powell has the story. Adding to the countless crises we hear about as economies around the world drift towards recession, the report says we can add inventory crisis to the list. It finds companies are currently holding massive amounts of stock, far more than they need, and it's burning holes in their pockets. Here's Jared Adam from Unleashed the software company behind the report.
10: We're hearing a lot from our customers that they were really struggling with the supply chain disruptions and ultimately for them that's just about the predictability of when they're going to get product in. So if they can't get product in, they lose sales, customer loyalty. So we were hearing that they were overstocking, they were taking a just-in-case strategy to their stock. So we wanted to see how wide and deep that problem was, I guess, and that's why we built out this manufacturing health report. So the data definitely reflects that sentiment. We can see that the amount of stock on hand has over doubled in New Zealand. Alongside that, the gross margins on that investment has come down by a third. So ultimately, it's less profitable in the end.
4: Mr Adams says manufacturers have taken the biggest hit, having ordered in excess of the multiple components needed to make their products.
10: You're only as good as your worst component in terms of that lead time. So you can have a whole bunch of product that's just sitting there waiting to be manufactured or assembled into one final product, which is obviously negative. You've got a whole bunch of, again, capital that's wrapped up in that and the final component that goes into that final product is the blockage.
4: However, fail to order enough parts, and they're faced with another problem, as one bike manufacturer discovered.
10: 90% of their bike components are in their warehouse, are collecting dust, sitting there, capital, fully wrapped up within it, and they're waiting for one last component that's coming from one of the big Japanese factories, which is really struggling to get enough of the particular components out
4: businesses which saw a surge in sales through the pandemic also ordered far too much so they could meet the demand. Take this business supplying dog beds, a hot item during the pandemic when pet ownership soared. It found itself with three times too much stock because it was so unclear how long shipping would take.
10: They were getting the majority of their product out of China so where they were expecting a three-month lead time getting containers full of product previously they had no certainty for when they were going to receive that product. So with the expansion and revenue on the sales side, they were having to purchase three times the stock that they thought they needed because they just didn't know when they were going to get it.
4: Dunedin-based technology company Tekshin was one of the 1,168 New Zealand businesses surveyed for the report. Managing Director Greg Myram says their stock levels are through the roof.
2: It would be a four to five times increase in the amount of inventory we hold than we did two years ago. It's a significant change. And the other thing is the type of inventory we're holding. There are particular components that are very difficult to get, so we've got a lot more of those if we can source them. Your inventory makeup has also changed, not just the volumes that you're carrying.
4: A silver lining for the company is that the stock isn't perishable and doesn't take up huge amounts of space.
2: It's so incredibly hard to forecast what that inventory should be. We're fortunate that our inventory doesn't date some of the stuff does date and they have to get rid of it, that's when it becomes a real problem. For those companies that, are, that have got perishables or near-perishable products, that's just a nightmare for them.
4: Mr Myram says the world is still coming to grips with the slower supply chains.
2: Most of us uh, you know, can adapt to these changing environments. It's the speed of the change which is the hardest thing. And I think now we're seeing the more normal, the more reality and there's more acceptance with our customers that they may have a delay than there was two years ago. So I think that the entire world's sort of adjusting to a different mindset around expectations.
4: This report surveyed 4,500 businesses across the UK, Australia and New Zealand. It found those which sourced locally and avoided overseas imports have flourished in 2022. Jared Adam from Unleashed says the biggest winner has been the beverage industry.
10: We can see that they've been able to reduce their fulfilment times double their margins through the period and their stock on hand hasn't changed particularly, certainly not as expensively as as a lot of the other industries. So yeah, the more local they can look, the easier that becomes.
0: A Royal Commission of Inquiry, that's the highest level inquiry available to the government, will examine how New Zealand responded during the COVID-19 pandemic. It will be chaired by Australian-based epidemiologist Tony Blakely, former Cabinet Minister Hekia Parata, and former Treasury Secretary John Whitehead. The inquiry was announced yesterday by the Prime Minister, and we will start considering evidence from the 1st of February next year, concluding in mid-2024.
3: The terms of reference have been approved and the Royal Commission has been asked to look at the response, identify what we can learn from it and how that can be applied to any future pandemic. The scope of the inquiry is wide ranging and will cover specific aspects of our health response, such as our border, community care, isolation, quarantine, as well as the economic response, and that does include broadly monetary policy. We'll not consider individual decisions, such as how policies applied to an individual case or circumstance. We'll also look into the effectiveness of our strategies, including elimination, minimisation, and protection.
0: I asked the National Party's Deputy Leader, Nicola Willis, if she's satisfied with the terms of the inquiry.
3: Well, we welcome the inquiry. As you say, we've been calling for it for more than a year. At our first glance, the terms of reference do look good. They will allow for a deep and comprehensive review. We do remain of the view, however, that a separate inquiry into the economic response to COVID-19, particularly the monetary policy response, is needed.
0: Yeah. Because I, I suppose with this, is, as, as I looked at it, I thought, wow, there's really two separate sides here. One is, you know, like, I, I guess, you know, how many lives did it save? And then the other one is, you know, like, I, I guess the cost of it, right? Is, is that the two that, that you were weighing up in this?
3: Well, I see it as more than that. It's also about the operational response, you know, the vaccine rollout. Why was that so slow? Could that have been faster? The late rat tests, you'll remember there was a real struggle for people to get their hands on those. Mm. The New Zealanders who were stranded offshore and unable to return home because of the MIQ settings. Those are the sorts of questions that New Zealanders to this day still ask me about. And I think it's appropriate an independent inquiry into the decision making that occurred.
0: Because I see the monetary policy will be examined by the inquiry, but not the decisions by the Reserve Bank Independent Monetary Policy Committee. So I'm kind of confused as to how that works.
3: It is confusing and what we in the National Party together with other parties in Parliament have been calling for for some time is a more comprehensive review of the economic response, both the amount of money that was printed, the amount that was borrowed, how that was spent and the impacts that it had and I'm not sure that the terms of reference in the Royal Commission will allow for the deep dive that we think is warranted. Well,
0: I, mean, I suppose, you know, one of the things too is, like you say, a, a deep dive to get in and, you know, for it to be comprehensive, although it's not going to come out until I think it's 2024. Some people have called that timing a bit cynical since it's after the election. How do you feel?
3: Well, I want to be fair here. If we're going to do a Royal of Commission of Inquiry, it needs to be thorough. And I think that we've run out of time probably to get it done before the election. And at any event, we wouldn't want to tie the hands of the reviewers by making them work to a very short timeline. It is regrettable, though, that it wasn't initiated earlier because that, of course, would have meant that there was some chance of it being wrapped up ahead of the election. OK, right.
0: Um, you know, our COVID response and our cohesiveness as a nation was heralded all around the world as as being world-leading. What, but what would you yourself give the government's COVID response out of 10?
3: Look, there were aspects of the response that were 10 out of 10. You know, the initial decision to go into lockdown was appropriate and I think did save lives. I think along the way there were things that were done well and you'd give an 8 or a 9 or a 10 out of 10 There were other things that were clear failures. I think the inability to roll the vaccine out quickly was a real fail, Mark, because what that meant was a much longer, deeper lockdown for Auckland than would have otherwise been necessary. Uh, And I think that we can see now that the decision to print tens of billions of dollars, to borrow a lot of money, has had real lasting consequences in terms of high inflation high interest rates and a cost-of-living crisis. So it is worth examining again those decisions.
0: What do you make of the cost of it, $15 million? Is it worth it?
3: Well, I think if we're going to do this exercise properly, it has to be done right. Hmm. And I think New Zealanders need to have confidence that all stones have been turned. And look, we'll evaluate how that money has been apportioned, but it is appropriate that this is funded effectively.
0: Let's move to Three Waters. That was interesting the last couple of weeks or so. The government's admitted that it made a mistake uh, with the entrenchment clause in its Three Waters legislation. So they've taken that clause out. So does that mean now you're a lot more comfortable supporting Three Waters?
3: No, uh, we continue to oppose Three Waters. We will repeal it. We will replace it. We think that it's actually without public support. There hasn't been the support for the uh, taking of locally held assets out of community control into large, bureaucratic, mega-merged structures with complicated governance structures. And I think there is a sense from the general public that the government has been running roughshod over public opinion with this policy. The Prime Minister has not been straightforward about how it came to pass that part of this legislation was to be entrenched, remembering this happened in the middle of the night under urgency, uh, and I think it leaves real questions about the integrity and robustness of this lawmaking process.
0: Because some people worry that they say, Oh, well, yeah, but you know, but National and their mates might want to sell off the water assets. Can you allay those fears now?
3: That's never been an issue. Not only do we not want them privatised, we want them to remain in community control, which is a point of difference with the current government, who are happy to remove them from the control of communities.
0: So do you think that policy is pretty much dead in the water now, or will it be pushed through?
3: Well, it seems the government is intent on pushing through its Three Waters reform against a huge amount of concern, both from local government leaders, from the general public, various stakeholders who raised concerns through thousands of submissions and yet they they seem intent on pushing it through under urgency
0: okay let's have a look at um you know we're heading into a a holiday period i think parliament goes on holiday after next week there but the the 25 cent cut in petrol excise duty and half price public transport fares those are due to end at the end of january do you think the government should reintroduce the tax or, or leave it off
3: well, look, I feel for motorists filling up at the pump, and I understand that the reduction in fuel exercise has been welcomed by many, but it is extremely expensive. It costs a country around $100 million per month, and when we see the state of our roads filled with potholes and we think about the construction of new roads and public transport needed for the future – it's clear we're going to have to fill that revenue gap. So we think that the change to the fuel tax is unsustainable, that the government will have to reintroduce it because there isn't, unfortunately, a magic money tree anywhere at the end of the garden. And look, I note that the fuel price, when it was first introduced, remember, earlier this year, had hit over $3. It's now come back down to more like two thirty nine or so. So we are in a different position from when it was introduced and ultimately Nathan we've got to stop putting band-aid upon band-aid with these short-term measures we have to take Long-term sustainable approaches that allow us to address the root causes of inflation.
0: Nicola Willis, there. Uh, Jeff from Oamaru says, "Yes, New Zealanders, don't, no, no, we don't um, tailgate. We're drafting. It's very canny." Tractor Man in Waipukurau says, "Ashburton is not a city." And Katie Morgan, yes, winner of the uh, the women's division of the Kepler Challenge. Katie Morgan just overachieving all
5: the time. Goodness me. Morning, reporters next with Marnie and Corinne.